Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we interview Dr. Leah Steinberg, a palliative care physician with Sinai Health in Toronto. We talk about how she connects the dots for patients transitioning from hospital to home and her tips to improve communication for providers and families. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. It's great to be here. We're so happy you're here. Well, we know Sammy works in people's homes, but Leah, you work in an acute care setting, a hospital. So what's that like? I mean, what's the main challenges you see each day where you work? So I work in the hospital almost exclusively. And there's this, it's getting less so, but this idea that, you know, the person in the bed in the room is the patient. And of course they are. Um, and that they're sort of like independent of their whole family. And it's the family that's taking care of them, right? It's the, the ripple effect this man is not managing on his own at home with his advanced heart failure and his multiple medications. And when people are sick or they're, you know, um, closer to end of life or have a serious illness or any of those things, they're not, they're generally not managing on their own. And, and we act as if we just have three or four things we need to tidy up. We need to, you know, change this medication and we need to do this investigation. We need to make sure that, you know, this specialist has signed off on them and then we're done. And we've done what the doctors need to do in the hospital. And therefore he is ready to go home. And there's this enormous disconnect between the tasks of the hospital and then going home again. And so I see it from this end it's so disjointed. And it's like the people who work in the hospitals, I don't know, it's like they've never really thought about what it is to be then at home. And, and I don't mean to say that so critically, because I think, of course, they do. It's just that the system's not set up. And we, it's like we're trying to squish the transition into the model of the tasks. And what's your role as a palliative care doctor in that transition? And so but it's not a task. It's, it's actually a, you know, a conversation with the family and how they're managing. And so that being able to really help in the transition like that, to really make sure that we know what home is like and what the stressors are. And, you know, when, when this person first got admitted, I spent an hour on the phone with his daughter because she was so overwhelmed. And I don't, and that sounds, you know, even the language that we use, overwhelmed sounds so negative. Like there's somehow that she should have been not overwhelmed, right? Like we blame her. She was like, I just hate that. Like, and and so we went through the list of sort of what, what's been going on and nobody had slept, right? The patient's wife is elderly as well. Nobody's sleeping. They're terrified. They don't know who to call. I'm sure this sounds like a lot of stories and their only option was really to come to hospital, which is kind of crazy, right? But then, but that's what they need. I was so glad that they came to hospital, but then, you know, we're just going to repeat the same thing if we don't think about what home is. And so 
that kind of thing keeps me going. You know, I'm hearing so many things there, you know, the lack of acknowledgement of, you know, the family crew having anything to do with this person's discharge home or their illness experience um, with the motivators of the hospital to get people out as fast as possible when they can check off the boxes um, with no training in home care, completely mm -hmm. ignorant of um, providing true informed consent for patients who are making a decision about going home. You know, it's not just about, yep, you're ready to go because we've ticked off these boxes. It's really, you know, this is your illness and this is where you're at. And this is what this hospital admission means. This is what's likely going to happen when you go home. And this is how it's going to unfold and who's prepared and ready to receive you. And how do they feel about you going? No one's doing that. And what I, what I feel worried about is that most people don't get Leah Steinberg. They don't. Most people don't get a beautiful palliative care team to help, you know, sort through and connect the dots and make sure that the landing is going to be a soft one at home. Most don't. So where it makes us feel better that we can be involved in those few situations. And I'm like you, I love when I can help people put the puzzle pieces together. I know for every one person I'm helping, there are thousands that are still getting the tick box kind of discharge and coming back in and coming back to the hospital with things on their hospital chart saying failure to cope at home. And that's not fair. You think it's unfair to say that a caregiver is overwhelmed? Well, I think it's really unfair when they say diagnosis, failure to cope. Mm -hmm. I scratch that right off when I see yeah. it, say failure of home care. I totally agree with you, Sammy. There's nobody else with that knowledge. So I think this is something that, that worries me a lot other than like oftentimes, like the, the, the OTs, of course, and the PTs, they own a lot of this, they have a lot of this knowledge and the social workers, but they don't have any power. Mm -hmm. And so what, what is remarkable to me is that nowhere in, as far as I know, the medical curriculum or in hospital expectations of healthcare providers, is there a requirement that you learn how to care for people in the transition or at home even so that the, there's no way to teach that. There's no room for that. It's almost by accident if learners learn about home care. Mm -hmm. That I do feel strongly about that, that there's no curriculum for how do you care for somebody with a serious illness in, there's no long view either of how do you care for somebody who you, you know you're sending home with a serious illness. It's as if it's a one, everything is an episodic event that isn't connected to anything else outside that, you know, and it is like, there's a discharge summary now, and that goes to the family physician, but that's not good enough. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned that because one of our skills is tag your it. 
And that's about the importance of someone connecting the dots in the system, especially with the home and community care system. So, you know, one of the really challenging things is that there is minimal connection between that group and the hospital. Minimal. We, there used to be care coordinators in the hospital who we could actually physically talk to and see a patient together and coordinate a, a complex discharge, right? For all these people, that person doesn't exist anymore. They've changed the system. And so now we actually have nobody exactly to call um, to say, let's make sure that this person's care is coordinated and organized at home. Um, there's actually just somebody that answers the phone that doesn't know the case. Um, and that has made our work enormously challenging. So I have to send people home to kind of a black box and I don't know. And, and, and I know that it's not about the resources. It's okay if people can't get enough support at home. I don't mean that it's okay. I, I don't need to change that. If they can't get enough support, they can't get enough support. And that's a, a terrible thing. It's more that I can't even know what kind of support they're going to get or talk to the person who's going to be providing the support so that I can give them a handover. It's all very um, um, unsettling. Unsettling. It's all extremely siloed and siloed is like the polite way to talk about this. Sorry. Um, anyway, I'm getting, I didn't expect to talk about this. No, okay. Because you know what? I think, well, I certainly appreciate what you're saying because then it doesn't just sound like whiny winemaker all the time because it's now whiny Steinberg too. Um, <laughs> no, because I, it's very important that you shine a light on the humongous gap in our training around knowledge about caring for people at home. We're not saying, you're not saying, and I'm not saying everyone has to do home care, but we do have to have an appreciation for home care from A to Z, including what you're saying, which is the cadence and rhythm of care in the hospital is very different than in the community. And so it's like you're going from like the Audubon <laughs> to a side street, a country road <laughs> in the community. Uh, things occur through molasses out here uh, without brick and mortar, the community is uh, very disjointed and very imperfect. Um, every care setting is, is to a certain extent imperfect and disjointed, but it is like going from fast speed to slow speed. Um, and, and if people don't appreciate that from the care setting they're working, their expectations or the way they speak to someone who's being discharged will set them up for being very disappointed. When things don't go well out here or um, service providers don't show up or we can't get services, um, I say, welcome to home care. Uh, it is not good, <laughs> um, but I know that I can speak to a patient and family about the lumps and bumps of home care and with that, do you still want to be at home? Because I'd like to advocate for that stuff to be fixed on a systems level. But today with your discharge, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at not being able to find someone who's gonna be able to tell us exactly how much service you're allowed at home per month. Mm 
So you're going to go home and it might take a couple of days. You know, I, I, I won't go into it. But what I'm saying is, again, without us being trained with the knowledge of then how do we have the conversations to set people up to even have the right expectations? So I have those conversations in the patients in the room, you know, in the hospital and say, this is what it's going to look like at home. Let's really talk about if, if it's a, you know, stormy day, you, you know, the nurse may not be able to come. And so let's, let's talk about that. Or because of COVID now, there's so few nurses. So, so they do, they can make more of a, you know, informed decision, but um, but the, you know, my, my real concern is the disconnect between, um, you know, when they walk out the door and we're no longer providing care and then the, the care starting up, uh, at home, those things are not connected properly mm-hmm. yet. Um, and I, your analogy is amazing of Audubon to country road. Cause that's, you know, that's exactly what it feels like and it feels like I don't know what the off-ramp looks like so now because I want to carry on with that analogy the off-ramp is uh is the black box mm-hmm. and I and it's scary I don't know mm-hmm. how to tell them to get on the off-ramp safely um mm-hmm. and that there and that even the country road's going to be you know that this is where this is your exit like I don't that part is really um it's it's it here's what it is it feels lucky to me if they exit and they're on the country road and it was safe and they didn't crash on the way to yeah. their home. So that that's, I think that's, it just feels lucky, not planned. And besides tag, you're it. We also talk about the skill of zooming out and really helping people to understand where they are in their illness and where it's going, what the roadmap is. Do you find that zooming out is a big part of your job? People know that everybody's busy they're intimidated, they're frightened, they're, they're in a really vulnerable situation. And when the expert comes and, you know, tells them what the matter is, if they don't understand, it's really hard for them to say, I'm sorry, I I don't really know what you're saying and what this means. So I guess my drive through all of this, and it's from like, before I was a doctor, and then during my medical training, and then after, is being the um, is the fact that we actually need a medical interpreter. We need a translator and we shouldn't need a translator. That, that's much clearer for me. And so in my job, I serve, I would say 80% of the time of what I do is medical translation for people. And I will sit in a family meeting and I will listen to it. And then I will spend the next time hour, whatever it takes, saying, okay, let's talk about what that, what that was, what happened. And you can just see people are like, oh, thank God, somebody's going to explain this to me. And I love that part of the job. I actually, I think there's actually a role for this. If, if, if I, I'm a bit unsure that we can teach clinicians to do this. And so um, I think that, uh, and I love that role. I love being able to be the <clears throat> translator, navigator, guide. Uh, and that's always been my role in medicine. Um, and so maybe that is this help, like this is, this would be the focus of, of kind of my communication work is to help clinicians also be 
the guide, be a true guide for people. And a true guide uh, shows you the path in a way that makes sense to you, right? They don't send you down a path you can't, you can't walk on. When you say medical translator, that I wrote that down. Um, I'll have to know what your Twitter handle is because I'm definitely tweeting something about that, um, about needing medical translators because that's very powerful. Um, it is like we would use translators for people who don't speak the same language as us. And so you're basically becoming a translator when a translator really shouldn't be needed. But of course, like you said, we're trained to speak in this medical weird language that's no one's first language and so we need people like a palliative care doctor to come in and to be the translator it's nutty yeah i think it's like a disconnect or a different language uh, like medicalese or medical speak because so often what the doctors are saying and what people hear is something totally different like you need to decode it in general when they want to give uh, bad news, or they want to tell families that things aren't going well, they use the medical speak that we use to tell each other that things aren't going well. And so when you listen to this, this is how it goes. They say, so since coming to the ICU, we've been caring for your mom and this is what's been happening. Her kidneys aren't working very well. So we've been using dialysis to, uh, help her kidneys to keep the blood clean. That was not very clear. We've been using dialysis um, and her blood pressure has been very low. So we're supporting her blood pressure with medication and her oxygen level has been very low. So we've needed to be using uh, non-invasive ventilation. So, you know, that big mask, we're using that mask to keep her oxygen level high. And we're also finding that her uh, platelets are low um, because the bone marrow is not working. So we've been replacing her platelets every few days. Okay, so that's how uh, doctors say your mother is dying. Mm -hmm. Because as a doctor, when you hear that, right, you, when you hear the words blood pressure support, so mm -hmm. Sammy, when you hear she's on blood pressure support, what does that mean to you? Well, that whole scenario that you just said, I'm thinking, okay, all of this is really just, you know, your mom is declining. They're, you know, she's um, in a situation that is not livable. Right. Um, we cannot go on forever doing these types of treatments. <laughs> you know, she's dying. Right. So, but what, how do families hear that? I can tell you what they hear. They're like, oh, there's a problem and they're fixing it. Oh, there's a problem and they're fixing it. Oh my gosh, yep. this is great. Yeah. Thank you thank so much. Like, yep. when are they? Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, there were all these problems. You're fixing it. When can she become home? Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Bless exactly. you. Exactly. We are supporting her blood pressure. We are, you know, replacing her kidneys and, and it sounds great. And all the other clinicians are like, yeah, that's, she's, she's dying. Yeah. yeah. And yet it's really, uh, and they think that the more they say, the more organs that aren't working, the more support, it's actually weird. The more yeah. support you need in ICU, the worse you are. And, right. and we, that makes total sense to doctors, but it's got to make no sense to people. No, and um, families would be like, keep going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, thank you. Yeah. More support, more support. Right. And so like, so somebody will say, you know, they will literally say she's on three blood pressure support medications now. 
And in doctor talk, that's like pretty much at end of life. Mm -hmm. And they don't, we're just so embedded in it that we don't even realize it. I don't think anybody does that on purpose at all. They, they just, that is the, so when, when we think about the translation, that is the language of badness in medicine. That just is the language. And they don't, there is no thought of, you know, instead of saying, you know, I'm afraid your mother is, we've been doing a lot of things to try to uh, get her better and none of them are working. Well, that's like saying, um, I'm feeling helpless as a doctor. I've mm -hmm. done everything I possibly can, but I've run out of options here to keep her alive. Yeah. But instead, I'm going to tell you about everything I've done um, because I'm feeling horrible about it. And because I don't really know how to tell you this. that you're because, we're tip, because we're tiptoeing around yeah. avoiding the D word. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. Like I, maybe, and I think that that might've been the that's case too generous? before. That's too generous. I actually think, cause I've seen people who I know are not afraid of the D word. Mm -hmm. They're not tiptoeing. They just don't realize that they're speaking a different language. Wow. They just, they mean perfectly well. They really do want to tell them, but they just don't realize that that is a language that does not, not understood. Yeah, okay. that's not understood. So it's not just a translator. Okay, because a translator is supposed to take exactly what is said. Correct. It's an interpreter. It, it, yeah, interpreter. Okay, I'm yeah. going to write that down. It's a yeah. medical interpreter. Yeah. <laughs> Because I wrote decoder. We talk about translating or decoding because well, because it's it's not just the um, the translation and it's the meaning behind it. So what the doctor's really saying, guys, yes. is this. But you know the the bigger problem here is uh, the language is um, embedded in the bigger problem of the power differential between patient family and doctor. The point is, is there's a power gradient between the doctor, the patient and the family. And language is one of the things that perpetuates that power differential. There's lots of things that um, contribute to that, but they're not on the same level when they're speaking. Um, and so it's a complete mismatch. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big problem because if we can't help patients and families truly understand what's going on, then how do we ever expect them to make a truly informed decision about anything uh, in their personal life, in their professional life, in their healthcare life? We're making decisions with partial bits and pieces of information, and that's not fair. And I would suggest I would go further and say it's harmful. And we all take an oath and we commit to doing no harm. Mm -hmm. But speaking in language that doesn't match to our um, customers mm. is harmful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple levels of this. So there's there's the basic mismatch in communication that that is, I believe, you know, fairly fixable or could be fixable in terms of teaching people to speak in English. I think that is not you know, uh, a far, a big reach or a big stretch. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
the you know when you when you ask me sort of the focus on on how what I teach when I teach communication skills. So there's just the first basic skills of of speaking in English and and appreciating somebody's um, ability to understand and sort of work at their uh, at at the level of where they're at when you start and sort of slowly coach and guide them along. And then there's the the more complex, you know, being able to work with somebody who's um, emotionally upset about the information and isn't able to uh, take it in at this moment. And, um, you know, the, the common response, so the, you know, this would be what I would say is the other sort of main focus of what I teach, you know, the common response from the clinician is to say, oh, they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, somebody says, no, that can't be true. You know, I want a second opinion or, um, no, that's just not true. Um, I know that, I know that there's a miracle that's going to happen or, or, or anything that sort of pushes back at you. Mm -hmm. The, the clinician's immediate response is to, to mm -hmm. give them back that information and give them more information. And so my other, the other pillar, I would say that, you know, um, and I'm not the only one who teaches this, obviously, um, is to just be able to recognize when somebody has an emotional response to information and doesn't need more information, needs support at that mm -hmm. point. And so I think that is a, um, a really powerful piece of communication knowledge and skill that takes people a long, a long way in being a better clinician for somebody. So I, I think um, those are, you know, I think that's that's another really big pillar that I try to I, I try to teach a lot. And so much harder to um, teach once people have been practicing for a while, right? It's so very hard. All of this is before we let people out. <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, we know that there's very little real estate for this kind of purposeful teaching. And most, and to be honest with you, most students, um, well, I wouldn't say most, but there are some students who feel that this is not the hardcore stuff they went to medical school for. They're so uh, anxious about uh, knowing all the minutiae and all the systems and the biology and mm -hmm communication skills become a little bit of a, a drag mm. until they realize when they graduate yeah. that it's their best secret yeah. for anything. Yeah. And then I, there's a scramble. I think, I think we don't teach communication skills um, appropriately at all. We see it as we teach it at the undergraduate level as if that's all, that's the place that it belongs. And then after that, you just use those skills. Um, and actually communication skills is a lifelong skill. And I think at the undergraduate level, you need a certain amount of communication skills. Um, and then at the resident level, you need more complex. And role models. Of course, that's how to teach it. But, but in terms of like what you need to learn, the communication skill you're learning, it has to be equivalent somehow to the, at least to the medicine you're practicing. Yeah. So, you know, at the undergraduate level, you're not, or I don't think should be having, you know, complex conversations about, um, you know, uh, 
treatments that have, you know, significant risks and benefits and different options, you know, they're very value sensitive conversations. Those are really complex conversations. And, and for the medical student, those are not conversations they should be having or even expected to have, or those aren't the, and those aren't the communication skills we should be teaching them. Mm -hmm. But when they are um, practicing in more complex uh, settings and with more complex, seriously ill people, then those are the communication skills they need to build. So it's, we should really be having a, uh, we really should have a graded communication mm -hmm. skill curriculum that follows the learners. And because as well as they, as they branch off into different uh, specialties, uh, as you and I have talked about, um, they have different needs for how that communication needs to go. So if you're a surgeon, those communication skills, they're the same skills, but how they're gonna apply in practice really will differ than if you're an emergency room physician. And so we, we act as if you can learn a basic set of communication skills at the undergraduate level, and those carry you through for the rest of your career. And that's just not true. It's, it's no different than all the other medicine. We don't, we don't treat medicine that way. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So Leah, one of the things I've heard you talk about is the importance of responding to emotion. And what we've heard from many patients and caregivers is that clinicians are often very afraid of emotion. They want to avoid the bad ones and they want to stay in this positive zone. And you've talked about leaning into it as a way to find deeper understanding. So I'd love if you could share a story with us about the importance of leaning into emotion. Here's a great example of where um, I saw a clinician respond beautifully to emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can, um, so there was a, it was in the ICU and it was um, the person who was dying. We were meeting with his parents and the clinician very uh, skillfully said to the parents that the patient was dying, that they had done all the treatments that they could and that this person was now at the end of life. So that's how they gave that information. No medical details, no sort of hiding behind the um, blood results and everything. And the reaction was, uh, was like this. Um, nope, that's not true. He's coming home. That's just not true. I know. And the clinician said nothing for quite some time. There, was, there were no words. There was nothing to say to that. And the clinician was probably quiet for, it was probably 20 or 30 seconds, which doesn't seem like long, but it was a long time. And said, I'm so sorry. I wish this wasn't happening. And so there was no argument. There was no, um, you know, the, re the, the this is where, I mean, the, the common, the, the want to response, and, and we all do want to say, no, actually it is true. It <laughs> is true. You know, his blood pressure is so low and we've done X, Y, Z, like try to, talk them into understanding as opposed to realize that there's no talking this family into understanding. There's just the fact of it. And 
eventually, and this went on for, honestly, like this went on for five or six minutes and there was no trying to convince the silence and the support and the, the clinician said things like, we, we never wanted this outcome either. This person tried so hard to, you know, stay with us, like just these beautiful, supportive, supportive of the truth in a way. And so um, eventually, you know, the tears came and we eventually talked about bringing in the rest of the family, but it wasn't a fight. So that, that's my example. I don't know if that's. That's a beautiful example. It was, it was, it was the most, I'm st- I actually get, I get chills just remembering it because it was so uh, loving. Mm-hmm. There was just no words. I love that story. Ooh, yeah, I love that story too. Um, I got those chills. Yeah, if I can follow that up, because I've also heard you talk about this idea of assessing a patient's understanding of their illness. So can you share a story of why it's so important to do that early on? Yeah, boy. So this gets back to the, again, the, you know, the medical translation, decoding, whatever we're calling it, because what happens is misinformation or misunderstanding builds on misunderstanding and it can be years down the road and you can uncover kind of misunderstandings that have been impacting care um, and decisions and treatment all along. Um, And so I think um, what's really important is to really spend, especially if, if something's not going right, there's something that seems really odd. It's time to spend, you know, some time to really unpack what the illness understanding is. So an example um, of this was from uh, years and years ago, I was uh, seeing a patient at home and the patient's wife was, you know, the way the story was is she was obstructing care. She was not letting the team take care of the patient manage his pain, his agitation. Um, She wasn't letting them give him pain medications. She thought they were killing him. And so she was extremely distressed as you can, as you can well imagine. And the story had always been, you know, she's being obstructive. She's, uh, and so, you know, it was this huge conflict in the home. And so when I went to see them on call one night, uh, it was, it was really quite a, quite a bit of a disaster, but um, uh, everybody was yelling at her. And I brought her aside and I sat down with her and I asked her what she thought was going on. And she said, well, you know, everybody's just trying to kill him with these medicines. He's, I know he's in pain, but, but these medicines, look, he's getting weaker and weaker every day. And that was true because he was at the end of life. And I said, well, tell me what you understand is wrong with him and she said well I like I don't really know what's wrong with him he's just been getting weaker and weaker and weaker and this has been going on for a while and I said well you know do you think he has any illness do you have you heard of anything about cancer and she said well no I mean he had cancer 11 years ago and I said okay that that's right he did um what happened and she said well they operated and the surgeon came out and said to me they got it all and I said okay that that's absolutely right and then do you remember 
that something happened with his bones, that there's a problem with his bones. And she said, well, absolutely. He has terrible bones, his bones hurt, and he's getting treatment for that. And he's getting radiation for the, for the trouble in his bones. And I said, well, has anybody explained to you that the trouble in the bones is actually the cancer? And she said, no, I, I don't understand that it's cancer because the cancer was in his bladder. So how can the cancer be in his bones? That doesn't make sense to me. And so we basically spent five or 10 minutes explaining about cancer, that cancer, that yes, the surgeon could have gotten it all out. She just didn't have that appreciation of metastatic disease and recurrence. Mm -hmm. Even though he'd been in the you know, radiation program, mm -hmm. it just didn't make sense to her. So even though people may have been saying he has cancer in the bone, um, it, that just didn't make any sense to her because the surgeon said he got it all. And so again, this is sort of illness understanding where when we, when we remove cancer, and that's fantastic, I hope that we can remove many people's cancer. You know, if there's a risk of recurrence, we don't really explain that. And so it can really set people up for, you know, some bad miscommunication or at least some real sense of betrayal. But more often than not, I find that there's a gap in the illness understanding mm -hmm. that if you go back far enough or you unpack carefully enough, uh, you discover there's just a gap. I have to ask, I've seen situations where even though the doctor is doing many of the right things, like assessing their understanding and listening and speaking in clear, plain language, they're still met with resistance from the patient and family who are still in denial. Emotions are high. Uh, patients and families get defensive, maybe even angry. I mean, how do you manage that in a clinical encounter? So mostly they're angry at the situation and they don't, they don't, they're, I just think of that, you know, people are so scared and vulnerable at this point that however it comes out, we have to just be able to realize that that is how it comes out. And it's, they're not angry at me per se. And so I find that I do do a lot of um, support around the hospital. Our team does for a lot of the clinicians who, who do find that they might take it personally. Um, and it just, it's just always about the grief and the, and the sadness mm -hmm. and the differing ability to regulate that emotion. And um, so what I do is I, I really try to uh, absorb that, but not take it in. I sort of diffuse it by letting it happen mm -hmm. and not fighting it. And so, you know, when something like this happens, oftentimes like the residents or the learners around me will say like, oh my gosh, why didn't you like, you didn't get upset or you didn't, you didn't actually, mm -hmm. I wanted to say, you know, no, that's not right. And, and it's really, that's really rewarding to be able to demonstrate and role model how you mm -hmm. can listen to somebody say, you know, you just want, you know, my person to starve to death or, or whatever. Um, and you're just like, that's really sad. And I'm, I really hear that that's what you're, what you're worried about and what you think is happening. And I have, um, 
a similar experience in the community, of course. Uh, and, and I always just assumed it was amplified in people's homes because of course that's where people can be themselves. And I often represent all the doctors and nurses that they've come in contact with uh, in the various care settings who they feel have done them wrong. Not, not always, but you do come across these scenarios where you show up and you sit and you listen to people who are very, very frustrated and angry and um, they lump you in with the rest of them. Uh, again, in their home, they can just let it out. And I do the same thing as you do, Leah. I let, I let it happen. And one of the students said to me the other day, oh, Dr. Winemaker, I felt so badly for you. <laughs> and I said, oh, don't don't feel badly for me. It's not about me. I, I'm okay. Uh, thank you for feeling badly for me, but that none of that was about me. Not one minute right. was about me. That's right. And every minute you spend listening to that is a trust building mm -hmm. exercise. I just say, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I say. That's yeah. exactly what I say. I thank say, you for sharing me. Don't sharing that with me. Get me started. I hear you. <laughs> exactly. And and the the so when you encounter people who have had experiences that that break trust mm -hmm. with the healthcare system, mm -hmm. the first our first role is to rebuild that trust. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I there's no other way to do it but to start by listening to the places that they feel. Mm -hmm. you know, to, to listen to the story that they have mm -hmm. and just that act of accepting that story and not saying, mm -hmm. well, actually, you know, I wasn't there, but, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure that they didn't do it that way. Like mm -hmm. as soon as you disagree or, you know, state something else, they, you, you, you don't, you don't mend that trust. Right. So I was, uh, went to a home with a student and, uh, we briefed in the car before we went in, we went over the whole scenario. We had picked out what we thought were going to be the areas that needed um, some deeper exploration. And knowing that we would listen to their agenda, we had our own agenda. Um, so anyway, we went in and of course the agendas go out the window. We spent the entire visit listening to how angry the patient's wife was uh, for the whole entire visit. And by the time we left, uh, she felt much better. She had felt heard. Um, we were welcome to come back. We were no longer lumped in the same category. And I left and I, and I said to the student, you know, that's exactly what we needed to do today. It doesn't matter that I didn't do a palliative care consult. It does not matter. It will go back. This can happen mm -hmm. in chapters. Um, yeah. That's what was needed at that moment. And it's going to pave the way for us to come back and do part two. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we need a part two with Leah in another episode. I feel like we could go on and on. Uh, we're nearing the end of our time. And we like to end our interviews with asking our guests, what advice do they have for patients and families on how to have a better illness experience? I think the best thing for for people is to be really open with the clinician about how they want information and to share with the clinician that they want the truth and that they can take it and that they, that they would really like 
to be given all the information uh, if that's what they want. There's a, a way that they could do that is they could say something like, can you tell me what this means for me? Can you tell me what to expect going forward? My worry is that if the clinician isn't comfortable, that the answer still won't come. So my second piece of advice is if you feel like you're not getting the information that you need or that you want is don't stop there. There will be other people that you can turn to that will help you get that information. For example, let's say you're in an oncology program. Let's say you're, you're, you have cancer. All the cancer programs have social workers. Ask to see a social worker and they can help advocate for you to get the information that you need. Speak to a nurse in a clinic. Don't rely on uh, the clinician you happen to be seeing being able to share information. Thank you yeah. for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thanks, you guys. It was uh, great to talk. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.